In his book, The Consequence of Ideas, R.C. Sproul told a story of how when he was a college student, he got a summer job at the maintenance department of a hospital. He was a philosophy major, and he joked of how um, none of the newspapers in his day had a single want ad for philosophers. So during uh, his first week on that job, he's doing some sweeping, and he noticed another man sweeping in the adjacent parking lot. The two, they exchanged names and pleasantries, and R.C. told the man that he was a philosophy major, and when he did, his fellow co-worker lit up and offered to him a barrage of questions about different philosophers, about Descartes and Plato and Hegel and Kant and others. It seemed kind of incongruous to R.C. that there was another man in the maintenance department of a hospital who had a passion for philosophy like he did, but then as he spoke to the man, it started to make more sense. This man was from Germany. He had his PhD in philosophy, and he had been a professor of philosophy in Berlin. And as R.C. recounts um, the encounter, he said that this man was saying to him, basically, when Hitler had come to power, the Nazis were not content to find a quote-unquote final solution for Nazis and gypsies. But they also sought to eliminate intellectuals whose beliefs were at odds with the quote-unquote values of the Third Reich. His new friend, as it were, his co-worker, was removed from his position. And when he spoke out against the Nazis, his wife and all but one of his children were executed after having been arrested. This man who ended up working in the maintenance department of the hospital doing sweeping like R.C. had been doing, he escaped from Germany with his young daughter. Now this story reminded me of how throughout history there have been those in positions of power who have feared the power of ideas, who have feared the free exchange of information, and most ultimately the truth that refutes their lies. I think recent years have provided many who were blissfully ignorant of this reality a reminder of how sadly present such things still are. Those in positions of power whether they be in big tech, or whether they be in big media, or whether they be in pharmaceutical companies, or whether they be in government agencies, have sought to squash and suppress information that has been contrary to their agenda. There are many examples of this, many. But one glaring example of this has been with regards to COVID. The maligning of treatments like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which were shown early on in the pandemic to be literally and legitimately safe and effective, and are still being shown to be with studies that are coming out. One recent French study with over 32,000 people involved in this study, looking back on treatments of people with hydroxychloroquine, showed that it was very safe and effective in treating people who were very ill. Examples go on. The routinely, currently, still to this day, the routinely suppressed dangers of gene therapy products that are marketed as vaccines are suppressed. Even though the information keeps coming, even though studies are still being done, it gets suppressed and suppressed and suppressed. And unless you are following people like in the FLCC or Dr. Ryan Cole or Dr. Peter McCullough or Dr. Brian Artis, you're not hearing any other sides of the coin, as it were. 
because the information is getting suppressed. Highly decorated doctors who didn't bow the knee to the narrative, lost positions, practices, credentials, followings, were maligned and continue to be slandered publicly if they didn't keep silent. And these are just some of the many examples of overt suppression of information and the intimidation of dissidents. All of which is a reminder to us of something that most of us couldn't have even imagined experiencing in this country at least not on this kind of scale. But it is something that Christians have so often known in history. History is replete with examples of Christians being threatened to keep silent about Jesus or face consequences. History is replete with examples of rulers, authorities, and regimes that have sought to suppress the spread of the gospel and the truth that is inseparable to the gospel. And right here, in Acts chapter 4, the history of that attempted suppression, as well as threats against the church, begins. It all starts right here in Acts chapter 4. That's how the ruling council sought to deal with the apostles. They weren't debating them. They didn't engage in a debate. They didn't seek to prove them wrong. They just sought to squash dissent. They threatened them and they sought to squash the propagation of the truth. See, on the other hand, Christians, Christians seek to destroy arguments. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Disproving arguments by speaking truth. But the world system so often has sought to destroy arguers to destroy those who would speak truth. That's how the ruling council sought to deal with the apostles. The Sanhedrin were not looking for a discussion. They were simply looking for submission. So the question becomes to us as we enter our text, how would Peter and John respond? Would Peter and John be silenced into submission? We'll see as we make our way through the passage. We begin in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, where we read, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. So notice this. If you're walking through the text, you notice something that the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, noticed. They saw something different about Peter and John. They saw, or more literally, were seeing something in them that wasn't standard fare. It wasn't callousness, or coldness, or indifference, or rudeness, nor was it some kind of cryptic, incoherent, politically correct doublespeak that could mean anything the hearer wanted it to mean. They noticed the boldness of Peter and John. Now, the word that's used here, that Greek word that's used for boldness, parousia, is a word that can be translated as openness or frankness. So they noticed in Peter's and Peter and John's speech, speaking, a kind of openness, a frankness, a forthrightness, a boldness as related to the things that they were speaking about. In other words, Peter and John were not holding back the truth. They were not taking, you know, some sort of, you know, inventory of the theological positions of the Sanhedrin to see if their statements were going to be tenable to their palate, as it were. They weren't holding back. If you go back to what we've studied, they openly and plainly and boldly declared 
that Jesus was the promised Messiah. They boldly declared that the ruling council was guilty of ushering him up to Pilate and putting him to death. And they boldly declared that there was no other way under heaven through which anyone could be saved. They spoke boldly and openly. Now again, this word for boldness that you see in Acts chapter 4 verse 13, you go through the New Testament and you see it used with respect to Jesus. When Jesus was talking about his forthcoming death and so on, he spoke, as Mark noted, openly about it. Mark chapter 8, verse 32. So when Jesus was speaking about his suffering and dying and rising, he was very open, forthright, frank about it. When the Apostle Paul gets converted, when he goes from being Saul of Tarsus, as it were, to becoming Saul who's proclaiming the gospel, known to us as the Apostle Paul, his preaching is marked by this. You see that in Acts chapter 9, verse 27. You see it in Acts chapter 9, verse 29. You see it in Acts 28, verse 31. His preaching was marked by boldness and openness and frankness. The apostles, Peter and John, spoke with boldness here, but they knew they were dependent upon God for it, which is why when you go ahead in this chapter, you're going to see them and other believers praying that God would grant them boldness. Acts chapter 4, verse 29, they're asking, grant to the Lord, they're asking him, grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. So they had boldness, but they realized they were dependent upon God for boldness. Apostle Paul, he realized this as well. When he's writing to the Ephesians, he's requesting prayer. You know the Apostle Paul had prayer requests? And he submitted them, as it were, to the church of Ephesus. He requested that they would pray that he would speak the word of the gospel boldly as he ought to. There are many things that ought to mark you and I as Christians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. But one of the things that ought to mark us is an openness, a frankness, a boldness as it relates to who Jesus is and what he has done. If you haven't heard the story about the St. George Evangelist, I would encourage you, uh, or George Street Evangelist, the George Street Evangelist, I'd encourage you to listen to it. Years ago at the first church where I served on staff, I memorized the entire story. I just thought it was so good and I wanted to share it, so I memorized the entire thing. It is amazing. It's the story of how one London pastor heard testimonies again and again at different speaking engagements, in different places, in London, in America, in India. He kept hearing about people coming to Christ through this little white-haired man in Sydney, Australia, who did evangelism on George Street. This man would step out of the shop doorway, as it were, and he would ask people who were coming down the street in this busy road in Sydney, he would ask them, excuse me, sir, or excuse me, ma'am, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? And as you go through this providential account, this London pastor keeps hearing of people coming to faith in this man. It's amazing. At the end of the account, um, he ends up being in Sydney, and he ends up being able to meet the George Street evangelist, a man by the name of uh, Mr. Genor. He was an elderly man at this time, and what he came to find, uh, what Mr. Genor came to find, is that his outreach was fruitful. He had never heard, this man who had been doing evangelism for 40 years, had never heard of a single person coming to Christ. 
This London pastor meets him and begins to share with him all of these different accounts of people coming to Christ through the simple witness of the gospel or that question that he asked in the tracts he handed out through the years. And this man, the George Street evangelist, told that London pastor his story. I won't tell you the story, you can listen to it, but he said that when he came to faith in Christ, he was so thankful for Jesus that he made this commitment to God. He told God that he would, in a simple witness, share Jesus with at least 10 people a day. He said there were times he couldn't do it, there were times that he was sick and he tried to make up for it at other times, but he said that he did this for over 40 years and he hadn't heard of a single person coming to faith in Christ until that encounter which happened to be about two weeks before he went home to be with the Lord. It's amazing. You'll hear in the account that somebody did a little tally of how many people were directly or indirectly influenced through this man's evangelism. People that he was used to lead to Christ or people that he led to Christ who ended up being used to lead others to Christ. In this little synopsis of events, it was estimated that he had influenced about 146,100 people to Christ. And what you come to find, I agree with the uh, speaker in the audio who says it's likely just the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Why do I share that with you? Why do I say that? Because in my estimation, his boldness and fruitfulness were apparently helped by his great commitment to share Christ. It just seems to be that way. It seems to me that when you share Christ, it becomes easier to share Christ, even when it's hard. And when you don't share Christ and you don't share the good news of the gospel, it becomes harder to share Christ and the good news of the gospel. So perhaps, by way of pastoral application, you can consider it. Perhaps today you will consider making a Mr. Genor-like resolution to share Christ with people and as a result fan the flames of boldness in telling people about who Jesus is and what he has done. Back to the text. Still in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, they see Peter and John's boldness, but they also perceive that they were uneducated and untrained men. Now the word for uneducated in the Greek literally means unlettered. As some commentators note, it could be used to refer to somebody who's illiterate, but we know that's not the case here. We know Peter and John both could write. We have books that they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the canon of Scripture. But it was also a term that was used to speak of those who were uneducated in this sense. They hadn't gone through the rabbinical schooling of the day. They were not like Paul who sat at the feet of the rabbi Gamaliel. These men were uneducated. They hadn't gone through the schooling of the day. They were also untrained. Uh, the Greek word that's used here for untrained is idiotes. Idiotes. As commentators know, it spoke of someone who didn't have a kind of professional knowledge. Uh, this spoke of laymen. Um, again, it would speak of those who weren't trained like the scribes. They didn't go to the rabbinic schools of the day. Peter and John were fishermen. So they were uneducated and untrained men, and yet here they are boldly declaring Christ, and they're able to make these deft and accurate references to Old Testament scriptures. And what was the reaction of the council? Again, Acts 4.13, they marveled. They were astonished. Now I want you to remember that the Jews of Jesus' day also marveled at him. 
those who were no friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, so often marveled at him. And in John chapter 7, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 17, we see some individuals marveling, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Think about this. They looked at Jesus as though he were a layman. Like, how does this guy know so much? He didn't sit under the feet of a rabbi. He didn't go through the rabbinic training of the day. Yet he knows so much of the scriptures. They looked at Jesus as though he were a layman. And so they marveled at Peter and John, even as they had marveled at Jesus. Like their master, they knew the scriptures. Like their master, they spoke openly and frankly and boldly. And like their master, they were unfazed by the power and the authority of the Sanhedrin. And so something began to click for them. Look at the end of verse 13. And they realized, or you can get from the tense of the verb here, they began to realize that they had been with Jesus. It's as though the light bulbs begin to go off. It's as though now they're putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Now maybe, just maybe, they remembered Peter and John as those who were standing in the courtyard of the high priest. You can reference John 18.15. Whatever the case was, they are looking at these men and it's starting to click. Wait a minute. These men were disciples of Jesus. Was it their speech? Was it the recollection of them being there in the high priest's courtyard? Was it all of the above? We're not told exactly, but the light bulbs are going off and they're like, okay, these are Jesus' disciples. That realization was coming to their minds, but Luke also tells us of another reality they had to face. Look at verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. So who's standing before the Sanhedrin? It's not only Peter and John. It's the formerly lame man. He's there. And you have to love how Luke notes. What is he doing? Is he sitting? Is he lying down? He's standing. I love how Luke, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, includes that. He's right there standing with them. Now again, feel the cinematic nature of this, right? They start to realize that Peter and John had been with Jesus. And then verse 14, and then it's as though their eyes start to look at the lame man. And they see the lame man there standing, and they're like, okay, we got a problem. These men had been with Jesus. We thought we solved the whole Jesus problem when we handed him over to the Pilate to be executed. But here these individuals are preaching in Jesus' name the resurrection from the dead, saying this man was healed in Jesus' name. And then we got this lame man, or formerly lame man, and we can't say anything against it. We can't sweep it under the rug. All the people in Jerusalem know about it. We've got a problem on our hands. And think of the witness that this formerly lame man could have been. He could tell the ruling council this was no magic. This was not done in the name of Beelzebub. This was done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He could also tell them, look, the Peter and John, Peter boldly declared that it was the God of our fathers who did this. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has glorified his servant Jesus so this isn't a foreign God that's being proclaimed. He was a marvelous witness of the power of God, the reality of the messianic nature of who Christ was, and of the fact that they were not preaching some other God. So the Sanhedrin needed to call a timeout. You know, to you and me, this might be like an open and shut, shut case. Not to the Sanhedrin. They're like, all right, we need a minute. We're calling a timeout. Uh, verses 15 and 16 we read, 
But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So they don't dismiss Peter and John in some sort of um, long-term way, as though the case is open and shut. No, they say basically step outside, leave the chamber, we need a moment, and we're going to decide what our next steps are going to be. You have here, I would say, echoes of Psalm 2. What we will see is fulfilled, or was fulfilled, in Jesus. We're going to see this a little bit later on in Acts chapter 4. The rulers gathered together and took their stand against Yahweh and his anointed. You have a little bit of the echoes of that here, as the rulers again are gathering together against his apostles, and ultimately against the Lord and his anointed even in that. And they asked, what shall we do um, to these men? How would you answer that question? If they asked you, what shall we do to these men? You'd say, believe them. <laughs> that's what you should do. You believe these men. That's what you should do. Believe them. Repent. Believe the good news of the gospel that they are declaring that Christ died for sinners like you and all of your sins will be blotted out. That's what you should do. I like the way the commentator Benson put it. He said, they should have placed them at the head of their council, received their doctrine, been baptized by them in the name of the Lord Jesus, and joined in fellowship with them. But that's not the direction they would go. Notice what they do. First, they describe their problem. They had a problem on their hands. They knew that a notable miracle, a noteworthy sign, is the language that's used in the New Testament Greek. They spoke better than they realized. It was indeed a sign. What do signs do? They point to something, as it were. This sign pointed to the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It spoke to the fact that the apostles were indeed his authorized emissaries. But they say they got a problem on their hands, basically. A notable miracle was done, and it was done through Peter and John. They acknowledged that. No debates there. It was evident or well-known to all in Jerusalem. The cat had been let out of the bag, as it were. And as they noted, they couldn't deny it. They couldn't sweep it under the rug. They couldn't pretend like it didn't happen. But here is their big problem. Their big problem is seen in verses 17 and 18 where we read, But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. This gets to the heart of their concern. They decide they will severely threaten them. Threaten them with severe punishments. Why? Because they didn't want them to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. That was the name they were terrified of. That was the name they were terrified by. The language is strong. Look at verse 18. They were not to speak at all. It's as though we were saying, we don't even want you having interpersonal discussions with people about Jesus. This doesn't come up in your homes. This doesn't come up in the public square. You don't talk about him at all. And then they said that they were not to teach in the name of Jesus. So no public messages. Don't talk about the miracles that he did. Don't talk about the prophecies that he fulfilled. Don't talk about his dying and rising. Don't talk about him being the prophetic fulfillment of the Messiah. None of that. You don't speak about Jesus lest you want to be severely punished. Again, do they engage in a debate? No. 
Do they provide some sort of rationale for this? No. What do they do? They simply flex the muscles of their authority. So that was their strategy. We are going to suppress truth via threatening. It's a strategy that works against a lot of people. And it has been the playbook of magistrates, the playbook of the state for years and years. You know, when Luther went to Worms, he was anticipating a debate. But there was no debate. There was two questions that were asked to him. He was simply asked, are these your works? And do you recant? That's it. Just flexing the muscles of authority. And when he said that he would not recant, they condemned him as a heretic. As the flames of the Reformation continue to spread, about a decade later, less than a decade later, in Scotland, in 1525, the Scottish Parliament had um, issued a law. They passed an act declaring that no one, no person, should be able to enter Scotland allowed to bring in books or works of Luther into Scotland. And if they did, their ship would be confiscated and they would be thrown into prison. Nonetheless, the truths of the Reformation, justification by faith alone, which are thoroughly found in Scripture, began to be propagated by one of their own, Patrick Hamilton. And what did the authorities do? They declared him a heretic. So he had to flee for his life to Marburg. He flees for his life to Marburg, but he goes back to Scotland in 1527, and then in 1528, February of 1528, he is burned at the stake. And so many examples of this sadly, throughout history. I remember early on in my Christian life reading of a man who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in China. And in this book, he would speak of uh, instances of believers in China when communists came to power and what happened to believers. He spoke of believers being crucified on the walls of their churches. He spoke of believers who refused to deny Christ being um, chained to vehicles and dragged to their deaths. He included the story of one pastor who had infuriated authorities by refusing to deny Jesus. And so a kind of makeshift crane was created by the authorities. And this man was bound to the crane. And he was hoisted up, lifted into the sky, given a final opportunity to deny Christ. And when he didn't deny Christ, the crane was released. He was dropped to the ground. And when they saw that he didn't die, they lifted him up and they did it again. See, so often... The rulers of this world resort to brutish exercises of their ill-used authority. Here in Acts 4, the rulers start where the rulers so often do, but it's not where they often end. They start where they often start, with threats. But you will find in Acts chapter 5 that they begin to make good on their threats. What started off with verbal warnings then turns to corporal, corporeal punishment, physical punishment in Acts chapter 5. You, however, stand in a long line of believers, Christians, who have said in one way or another, here I stand. I can do no other. And I just want to tell you the truth. It will cost you at times. It may not cost you as much of those, as those previous examples I gave, but it may. And it will cost you to stand up for Christ, to be one who will not put their light under a bushel, to be one who will confess Jesus before men, to be one who will not deny Him before men, it will cost you. It may cost you positions, it may cost you uh, acquaintances, it may cost you a whole bunch of things. It may cost you your well-being, it may cost you your job, it could cost you your life. 
But if we're seeing rightly, see, we were just talking about the Sanhedrin not seeing rightly, right? When they said, what shall we do with these men? If they were seeing rightly, they would have said, we're going to believe them. But when we're thinking about persecution, if we're seeing rightly, we're going to be like the lame man who leapt for joy. Don't take my word for that. That's language the Lord Jesus Christ used. In Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, Jesus said this, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil. Why? For the Son of Man's sake. That's when you're blessed when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you and cast out your name as evil. For the Son of Man's sake. This is what Jesus says in Luke 6.23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. And I don't want to give away the story, but we're going to see the apostles do that in Acts chapter 5. They're going to rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And you may not feel like that. You may not be able to imagine yourself feeling like that. But I just want to tell you that's how we ought to feel. Because Jesus declared that such ones are blessed, and they ought to rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. You stand in the line of men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and others, Peter, John, Paul, and so on, to be anachronistic and import that into um, this current situation as well. Well, they threatened Peter and John, the question becomes, how would Peter and John react? Look at verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So look at the beginning of verse 19. Peter and John answered. It's as though you get the sense that they're both on the same page. They both have unanimity of mind. They're in one accord right here. Peter and John are not acquiescing to the Sanhedrin's demands. They are answering with boldness and courage. The threats did not work. The threats were already showing no efficacy. And look what they say. They basically say to them, okay, if you, in your estimation, if you think it's wise, and specifically to use the word right, if you think it's right to obey you instead of God, that's your prerogative. You, you, you can make that decision. You'll be wrong. But if you think it's right to obey you instead of God, that's your prerogative. But for us, we don't have a choice. That's essentially what their response meant. That phrase is right in the sight of God is the key. Did God think that not speaking about Jesus was right? Or did God think that silence about Christ would be disobedience to him? See, this is how a Christian thinks. A Christian doesn't say, what's just better for me? What would have been better for Peter and John in their personal comfort? It would have been to just listen to the Sanhedrin. You got it, guys. Look, we accomplished what we want to accomplish. A lot of people got saved. It was a good day. But we're going to stop now. And then they could have said it was a great ministry we had. You know, it didn't last too long, but there was a lot of fruit. And now those people will go produce fruit. And they could have justified disobedience. And it would have been better for them physically by way of comfort and so on. But the question was, would that be right? Would it be right to obey those in positions of authority if obeying those in positions of authority meant disobeying God? And the answer is no. When governing authorities order disobedience, disobedience to their dictates is actually obedience to God. 
Let me just emphasize some things that should be clear in light of the past few years that we have experienced in this country and that many have experienced outside of this country. When authorities say that the church cannot gather, the church says, sorry, it's not an option. We must gather. We've been commanded by a higher authority to gather. When the authorities say, you cannot call homosexuality sin, and you cannot say that there are only two genders, male or female, Christians lovingly say, that's another occasion where silence is not an option. God has revealed in his word that homosexuality, along with a plethora of other sins, are wrong. And amidst the gender confusion that is going on in our society, God's word offers clarity. He created them, male and female. When governing authorities say that you are not allowed to teach your own children, or they declare that you cannot teach the Christian faith to your children, they have again overstepped the bounds of their authority. Children do not belong to the state. Regardless of what you might hear from officials, they are not everyone's children. God has given authority to parents. And God has commanded parents to train up their children in the way they ought to go. Now, should there be obedience to magistrates? No doubt. The Bible makes that clear. You go through 1 Peter 2, you go, that, you go through Romans 13 and so on. But here is an instance that we see very clearly that when the magistrates are saying you must disobey the word of God, disobedience to the magistrates are actually obedience to God. And you're not doing it in a mean way or a spiteful way. You're not trying to be heartless or cruel or callous or indifferent and so on. You're just saying, I just don't have a choice. It's kind of like Peter and John here, where they're saying, you know, we cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and heard. It's not an option for us. We must obey the Lord Jesus Christ. We must, must obey our God. Christians are to be the best citizens, caring about, praying for those who are in positions of authority, no doubt. But it's never right to obey magistrates over and against God. Look at verse 20. Uh, this will be where we will end for today. You have to love this statement. They say, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, there are echoes of other examples of this in the scripture, both before this and after this. It's reminiscent of Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, where Jeremiah was having a real kind of back and forth of heart. And in this back and forth of heart, he recalls what he had said at a given time. He said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. Jeremiah suffered persecution, seemingly unrelenting, uh, unrelentingly from his countrymen and for those in positions of power and so on. And he got to a point at one time, he's like, you know what, I'm done. I'm not going to make mention of the Lord anymore. I'm just not doing it. But that didn't last too long. He said, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire. Shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. See, that's the humble, hopeful expectation that you should have as a Christian. That even when you say, it's costing me too much. I'm paying too much for preaching this Christ. I'm losing too much. It's costing me too much. But then by God's grace, that word is like a fire. You're like, I can't keep it in. I have to speak about what Jesus has done. He is the only way. He is the only hope. He died for my sins. He absorbed them on the cross. He rose from the grave in fulfillment of the scriptures. I have to speak of him. This life is but a vapor. And then men and women will ultimately stand before God. And after this life, they're either going to the heaven that is, or they're going to a place of torment. And they're ultimately going to go to either the new earth, or they're going 
to go to the lake of fire and I have an opportunity in this vapor of a life to bear witness of Jesus, I cannot help but speak of what I've seen in the word of God, what I've heard with my ears. Jesus is the way. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And you have no confidence in yourself to preserve yourself. You are trusting in his power. You know, at the end of the day, you would wither. If any one of us were brought before councils and magistrates and so on, left to ourselves, we would wither. We would deny the faith, we would deny Christ, and we would rather have our vapor of lives than glorify Jesus if left to ourselves. But you look at places like Luke 21, and there's a promise there that has application to you that on that day, Jesus will give you a mouth. And that you'll be preserved because you're in his hands, not because you're holding his hand. Paul had similar feelings when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, he said, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Like, I have to do this. And then he goes on and he says, Yes, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. It's like I don't have a choice. I have this necessity laid upon me. The prophet Amos wrote, a lion has roared, who will not fear? You're like, what does he mean? It makes it clear in the second half of the statement. The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? I have to. Peter and John had been called to be witnesses. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And in one sense, they just didn't have a choice. They were basically saying, we can't do that. We can't bottle this up. We can't obey your command, Sanhedrin. Obedience to you would mean disobedience to God. And I hope by the grace of God that in hearing this word today, that there's a similar passion that's welling up in you to fan the flames of boldness and in this short vapor of a life, regardless of the cost, not trusting in your own power of preservation, but in God's grace to preserve you, that you will seek to fan the flames of boldness and let people know about the only name under heaven given to men whereby it must be saved. Think of Peter and John declaring to this council, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which you builders rejected, which has been made the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved. May, the fan, or may you fan the flames of boldness, mingled, of course, with compassion and kindness and love, and make known the good news that God has made a way of salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ, and faith in him. Now we'll see what happens. In the next portion of the account, Lord willing, in our next time in the book of Acts, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we could read Peter and John's response and be encouraged in, of our, in, in, our, in our own hearts to have a similar boldness because we have the same Holy Spirit. So Father, we pray that you would help us. Because, Father, we can relate. When they said that we cannot help but speak, we can understand that because we have this great news of the gospel. And even though there are times where we may be tempted to be quiet about it, at the end of the day, we feel like Jeremiah, as it were. Like there's a fire that's shut up in our bones that we just have to let out by loving and honest and truthful declarations of who Jesus is and what he has done. 
Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that as we leave here today, you would help us um, to go out and to make known the gospel. But Father, as we prepare for the Lord's table, I pray that you would help our hearts to prepare to treasure afresh the message that we actually have to bring, that Jesus suffered for us, that he bled for us, and that he rose for us so that we could forever be in your presence as redeemed sons and daughters of the living God. What good news. Encourage your servants, I pray, to speak the truth of the gospel with boldness and help your servants today to treasure the Lord's table with reverence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.